Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. So we've been looking in Acts chapter 1. Now this year we have been, and let me back up a little bit, those passages are very relevant to the problems and issues we have going on today. And really the Nicolaitans that's being dealt with is the same thing that Jude was dealing with when he told us to earnestly contend for the faith because there were some who were turning the grace of God into licentiousness or lasciviousness, whichever word you want to use, or sensuality. And um, that is the thing, right? And so we have this issue of idolatry and sexual immorality uh, that is really devastating Western civilization. We used to say Western Christendom, but it's not Christian anymore. And so now we're just left with uh, the, the ruins of a civilization. And so uh, we have been dealing with things that we need to know in 2023. Usually I'm preaching through a book of the Bible. And throughout 2023, I am not. I'm preaching topically. And the reason is because of the day and age in which we're living and all the things that are going on around us. And, and we are perplexed and we're dismayed and we're confused. And so there's some things that we need to know. This is one of the things that we need to know, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we need to know this because it is going to impact where we go from here. So if we want to see uh, repentance and revival and re, uh, reformation, then we need to grasp this issue once again and to understand the promise that God has given unto us and then to live lives in boldness according to the power of the Holy Spirit and see what the Lord will do. And just like in the first century when the church turned the world upside down and, and just, as when it, just as it was turned upside down once again, at least the western half especially, but uh, uh, back during the uh, Reformation, uh, we understand that when things have gotten bad, that the Lord has always empowered his church because it's the promise that he has given. And we can rest in that promise. So look in Acts chapter 1, and we've read this passage a couple different times. So I just want to read uh, one verse, the uh, final verse that we've been, we've been reading verses 1 through 8. And I just want to read verse number 8 to lead us into this. We've had a kind of an introduction over the last two weeks. And so we need to make some progress here this morning. He says, but, but you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In the opening verses of the book of Acts, the author Luke addresses a person named Theophilus and refers to a previous account that he had written about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, this 
previous account is likely the Gospel of Luke. Luke's purpose in writing was to provide an orderly and comprehensive record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke reminds Theophilus that his previous account covered the period from Jesus' earthly ministry until the day of his ascension into heaven. He emphasizes that Jesus' actions and teachings were not random, but or they weren't haphazard either, but were purposeful and carried out in accordance with God's plan. So after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 uh, days with his disciples, appearing to them and speaking about the kingdom of God. These appearances were accompanied by many infallible proofs. That is a very important topic that we're not dealing with that right now. But notice that Luke says these were infallible proofs. There's no argumentation against them. They're infallible. I mean, there's, there's no fault in them. There's, there's no error. It's 100% truth, and it is eternal truth and absolute. So he says it was accompanied by many infallible proofs, providing undeniable evidence of his resurrection and establishing his authority. This is, that is really uh, the tip of the spear for us. If, if we were to really, truly believe and understand and, and to be convinced absolutely of Christ's resurrection and his authority that he possesses because he said that he had been granted all power and all authority in heaven and on earth, it would transform us as Christians. It would transform the church. It would reawaken the church and it would re-empower the church and this world would be a different place. Uh, but our, the problem in this world is our lack of faith. But... Through these encounters, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus not only reasoned and reassured his disciples of the victory over death, but he also imparted specific instructions to them. It is highlighted that Jesus gave these commandments to his chosen apostles through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit played a significant uh, role in the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus, empowering him to teach and to instruct his disciples. And Jesus' teaching during this period focused on the kingdom of God, emphasizing the spiritual nature of his mission and the imminent establishment of God's reign. And there are many things that we could discuss in relation to the first part of this chapter. But our purpose is to focus on the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is something very important that we need to know for 2023 and whatever additional time God gives us to serve him in the years to come. So let's notice first that they were in verses 4 and uh, 4a basically and 6a that they were assembled. Uh, so we, we, we see here the necessity of Christian community, which is what we're talking about in Sunday school. Life together. Uh, Christian community, the importance of it, the necessity of it, and how it is to uh, be recognized and understood. But here they were assembled together. It was the gathering of believers. 
Now, the early believers understood the importance of coming together as a community of faith. They recognized that their individual relationships with God were strengthened and enriched when they gathered together. Assembling together was not merely a casual thing. It was a deliberate and an intentional act of unity and fellowship among those who were followers of Jesus Christ. The first Christians recognized that they were meant to navigate their faith, uh, that they were not meant to navigate their faith journey in isolation. They understood that God's design for his people included being a community one with another. In gathering together, they shared their joys, sorrows, struggles, and victories. They supported and encouraged one another, spurring one another on to love and good works. The reason. Well, you see, each of us could do a little better. We just need a little spurring on, a little stirring up, or as the King James says, a little provoking. Provoke one another to love and good works. It's the old, it's the, it's the Marine Corps concept, no man left behind. That's the community of saints. And so we stir one another up to love and good deeds. The power of unity within the Christian community cannot be overstated so no matter how much it feels like this is just weighing down and pressing down upon you it cannot be overstated that we as the people of God need to become a community especially uh, in our days there's no such thing as community anymore um And so the church needs to become that community uh, because society cannot function outside of it, as a matter of fact. But uh, when believers come together, there should be this unique cooperation that takes place. And this is one of the reasons why that we have tried to uh, re-engage the discussion about Christians cooperating with each other. You know? I'm talking about Orthodox Christianity, but we're too busy separating and dividing, causing all kinds of schisms and problems. Now, I'm not saying that we get rid of doctrine and that we are not concerned with the truth. We are concerned with the truth, but we're not concerned about your preferences or my preferences. That's not what the church is defined as. That's not where our identity lies. It's based upon the primary articles of the Christian faith. And all the secondary and all the indifferent issues, we need to learn to love one another in them. But, back to what we're saying, when believers come together, there's this unique cooperation that takes place. They become united in purpose and vision and mission. And as they align their hearts and minds to God... They are better equipped to fulfill God's purposes in their lives and in the world. And the more we align our hearts and lives to God, the more we're aligned to one another. And so Christian fellowship serves as a powerful testimony to the world. And they understood the importance of it. 
The unity and love displayed within a community of saints or a community of believers is a testament to the transforming power of Christ. It demonstrates the reality of God's kingdom here on earth and draws others into the fold. As Jesus told his disciples, the very ones here who were assembling themselves together here in Acts chapter 1, he had told them in Luke chapter 13 and verse 35, by this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the most powerful testimony in the world. That is the most effective form of evangelization that there is in the world. Is when the world looks over at the church and they're like, Wow, they really love each other. And we're out here in this world full of hate. And we're miserable. And those people love each other and they have joy and they have peace. That's what I want. That's what I've been looking for. I couldn't find it in heroin. I couldn't find it in pornography. I couldn't find it in all these other things. But apparently they found it, right? So in assembling together, believers not only find strength and encouragement for their personal faith journeys, but they also contribute to the greater mission of the church. They recognize that their individual giftings and callings are meant to be exercised within the context of the community. Together, they can accomplish far more than they could ever achieve on their own. And we could go into that, how, uh, you know, two are better than uh, one and three are better than two and and, and that sort of thing. But um, we understand that the community of saints, assembling themselves together, is extremely important. Of course, there are passages of Scripture that we could deal with in relation to that. In Hebrews chapter 10, how that we are commanded not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. We could look in Acts chapter 2, which we will eventually again, and see how they were devoted to the assembly of the saints. But we see that they were gathered together. But not only were they gathered together, in verses 4b through verse 6, notice that they were commanded. And here we understand the necessity of obedience. The command was to wait. The command was to trust in God's timing. The early believers received a specific command from Jesus Christ to wait in Jerusalem. I mean, here he, they had been all hopped up on the Great Commission that Jesus has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. And because he has all power and all authority, you, the, his followers are to go into the world and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things that he had commanded them. And then he assures them that he'll be with them always, even until the end of the world or the end of the age. Here they're all hopped up on that. It's time to take over the world. And then what does he tell them? Wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. This command was not a suggestion, but a clear instruction that required their obedience. Of course, waiting can be challenging. Nobody likes to wait. 
Talking to a 15-year-old, waiting till they're 16 so they can get their driver's license. Nobody likes to wait. That's the reason why you wrap all the presents. As soon as you get them wrapped, as soon as they're under the tree, what are the kids wanting to do? They're wanting to open them. But it's still two weeks till Christmas. We never wrap them that early. That's torture. Um, So it's kind of better to wrap them and then just unwrap them at the same time. But uh, that way you don't have to go through all the process of of having to uh, exercise patience. But nobody likes to wait. Waiting can be challenging, especially when you're eager to go out and do something. And here they were eager to go out and to proclaim the message of Jesus. It's the commission that they have been given. But they understood the importance of trusting God's timing rather than rushing ahead in their own strength. Now the act of waiting demonstrated their patience and their submission to God's plan. They recognized that God's timing is perfect and that he had a specific purpose and plan for their lives and the spreading of the gospel. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 6 reminds believers to trust in the Lord and not to lean on their own understanding, but to acknowledge him in all their ways knowing that he will direct their paths or make their paths straight. By obediently waiting, and we'll be talking about this next week, um, because they didn't, their waiting was not inactive. Okay? We, we kind of have that misconception that waiting means doing nothing. That's not true. But by waiting, they exhibited their trust in God's wisdom and guidance knowing that the Lord was the one who would renew their strength. He was the one that would make them mount up with wings like eagles. He was the one that would cause them to run and not be weary and to walk and not faint. Because the Lord is our strength. And therefore, let our hearts take courage and wait on the Lord, the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 27. And then we see the promise to receive anticipating the fulfilling of God's promise. So in addition to the command to wait, Jesus also promised the early believers the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's a charged term nowadays in American Christianity, especially during the 1900s. Not so much now because, you know, I mean, there's uh, not much Christianity left for people to argue about. Uh, But it is one of the things that actual water baptism signifies. Now, water baptism signifies, you know, being buried in Christ and raised with Christ. Um, It signifies being washed in the blood of Christ. But it also signifies the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon believers, upon the church. Peter emphasizes this in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Think of what Peter says. Remember, he preaches that sermon on the day of Pentecost. It convicts them. It pricks their heart. And they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter responds to them by saying this, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. That same promise that was given to the disciples, Peter is saying, that's the promise to all who repent and believe. It's just not delegated to the twelve. 
So this promise brought anticipation and excitement as they understood that it would be a transformative experience, earth-shattering. The baptism with the Holy Spirit was a significant aspect of their life as believers, their life as Christians, what it meant to be living by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you can live by faith, by the way, is in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was empowering them for their mission of proclaiming the gospel. So the promise of the Father referred to the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had previously spoken about during his earthly ministry, like back in Luke 24 and verse 49. The promise assured believers that they would receive a supernatural enablement and empowerment through the Holy Spirit. The baptism would equip them with spiritual gifts, boldness, and the necessary power to be effective witnesses for Jesus. Isn't that what what it said here in verse number 8? What's the actual promise? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. To do what? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, the whole world. Every nation, every tribe, every race, every language, the whole world. Jesus himself proclaimed the promise of receiving power through the Holy Spirit. This power would enable them to be effective witnesses, not only in their immediate surroundings, but to the ends of the earth. Now that's some powerful stuff right there. We're talking about turning the world upside down, or as Christians say, right side up. You see, original sin turned the world upside down. Jesus Christ came to turn the world right side up. So this verse highlights the transformative impact of the Holy Spirit's presence upon the world. And where does that come from? It comes from the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the saints. Because the Holy Spirit transforms the life of of believers, that transformative power then collectively comes together in the community of saints and it impacts the world. So by patiently waiting and eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of God's promise, they demonstrated their obedience to Christ's command. And so they recognized the importance of trusting in God's timing and in faith of, to his promise. And then notice in, verse, uh, in 6b, the end of chapter or, or the end of verse six, that they were seeking, and here we see the necessity of pursuing. They ask a question in response to this, and the question is in relation to longing for the restoration of the kingdom. The disciples assembled together with Jesus expressed their longing for this. Now, we spend too much time, and I do too, because usually the only time I ever mention this is when I'm being critical of the disciples. 
But we spend way too much time criticizing the disciples for this question. The question actually reveals their deep desire to be witnesses and to witness the fulfillment of God's promises and the establishment of his reign on earth. Now, they were seeking clarity and understanding regarding the timing and the nature of this restoration. The disciples desired the restoration of God's kingdom, reflecting their understanding of God's covenant promises to Israel through the scriptures. So they anticipated the fulfillment of prophecies that spoke of a future kingdom where God's rule and righteousness would be established on earth. Their question demonstrated their genuine commitment to God's purposes in this matter and their eagerness to see his plan unfold. I mean, one of the promises in relation to the Messiah coming. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this prophecy in Isaiah highlights the anticipation of a future kingdom under the reign of the Messiah who will establish justice, righteousness, and peace. And the disciples' question here resonates with the hope that is expressed in this prophecy and many others. So the disciples demonstrated their sincere pursuit of understanding and longing for the rule and reign of God. While their understanding may have been limited at that moment, they sought clarity from Jesus, who had the authority to reveal God's plans. But the importance here we see is that the seeking and pursuing of a deeper understanding of God's purposes and seeking his guidance in all aspects of our lives now, ultimately here, Jesus redirects their focus to the mission rather than the day in which there will be no need for the mission. It's like, yeah, you're, 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 you're looking too far ahead. You need to focus on what we need to do to get there. So he redirects their focus to the mission at hand and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit while the timing and the nature of the kingdom's restoration were under God's authority, their immediate task was to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and become witnesses for Jesus, who has all power and authority granted unto him in heaven and on earth. They were to bear testimony that Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ. They were to become his witnesses, both in Jerusalem and to the ends of the world. So this redirection reminds us of the necessity of aligning our pursuits with God's priorities and seeking his guidance in fulfilling his purpose in our lives. And then notice verses 7 through 8. They were corrected. It shows us the necessity of instruction. So they have this life committed to faith and trusting in God's authority. 
And so the disciples in their anticipation of the restoration of the kingdom were corrected by Jesus regarding the specific timing of the event. And Jesus emphasized that the knowledge of the times and seasons for the fulfillment of God's plans were within the Father's authority and not for them to know. Of course, Jesus had already told them this before. So this correction taught them the importance of embracing the mystery of God's timing and plans and the necessity of trusting in his authority and being focused on the mission. Not Monday morning quarterbacks, not theorists, but workers. And then we see the receiving of the power or the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus instructed the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the uh, Holy Spirit to come upon them. And this promise would empower them for the task ahead. The commission that they had already been given. They were to anticipate and receive the divine enablement necessary for effective witness and ministry. And then... Notice the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the source of boldness and authority. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and would be the source of their boldness, their authority, and the transformative work within their lives and within the world. And through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, believers are equipped and empowered to serve and bear witness to Jesus Christ. And then we notice the purpose This is the purpose. The purpose of this promise of the Holy Spirit was to make them witnesses that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The ultimate purpose of the disciples' empowerment and witness was to testify to the identity and the significance of Jesus Christ. They were commissioned to proclaim The gospel message making known to the world that Jesus is Lord and that he is the promised Messiah. This is what we find in Matthew 28. It's also what we find in the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I love that sermon there in Acts chapter 2. Going through and proving that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Because that is the message that we are to proclaim. That every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in conclusion, we see that the application that we should make here is the embracing of the promise. And the proclamation of the gospel. And of course that's been lost in the modern church today. We have focused on a lot of different things, but we have gotten sidetracked from the mission. We have grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are trying to exist in a powerless state. We're like those who Paul warned about who deny the power thereof. You see, this passage reveals some essential principles that are relevant for us today. 
Just as the early disciples were assembled together, obedient to Jesus' command and sought understanding, we too are called to live out these truths in our lives. This passage not only provides guidance for our individual uh, life of faith, but also presents a powerful challenge, call, and commission for Christians in this present day. And I'm telling you what, the world needs, as they're groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God, this, what this world needs is for Christians to be renewed in this challenge, to be renewed in this call, and to be renewed in this commission. But notice first the power for the challenge, which is relying on God's strength in difficult times. As believers, we encounter various challenges and obstacles in our lives and in the fulfillment of God's mission. However, we can draw strength from the disciples' example of waiting on the promise of the Father. And in times of uncertainty and adversity, such as we are living in today, we are called to trust in God's timing and to rely on His strength to navigate through these challenges. The Holy Spirit empowers us to preserve or to persevere and to overcome obstacles and to remain steadfast in our faith. Paul, or the Lord told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then secondly, the call to embrace God's promises, trusting in his faithfulness. Just as they eagerly awaited the fulfillment of the promise of the Father, we are are called to embrace the promises of God with expectant faith. All faith should be expectant. I mean, if we're hoping in something that we don't believe is going to happen, that's not hope. That's not faith. We are to have expectant faith. And so these promises include the dwelling, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, guidance, provision, and the assurance of eternal life. But by anchoring our trust in God's faithfulness, we can find hope and confidence in His promises even in the midst of all the uncertainty. And then third, the commission to proclaim Jesus, sharing the gospel with boldness and love. The disciples were commissioned to be witnesses of Jesus' lordship and His messiahship, sharing the gospel with the world. And so too... We are called to boldly proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior in our spheres of influence. The opportunities that God gives us, we are commissioned to demonstrate His love, to share His redemptive work, and to invite others to experience the transformative power of the gospel. See, what we need today is to be able to say, the church of Jesus Christ needs to be able to say, Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what we are lacking today, and that's what we so desperately need, is the power of God upon his people and upon his church. 
we must seek and wait for the renewing of the power of the Holy Spirit upon us because this promise was just not for the twelve. It was not just for the apostles. When he said, but you, he was talking to all believers. He was speaking of the church, the church that he promised to build. It included the first 120 who were gathered together in the upper room, and it includes all those who thereafter have been gathered into the body of Christ. This is what Peter makes clear in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, as we read earlier. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And also in Acts chapter 5 and verse 32, it says, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God has given to them that obey him. Acts 10, 44-45, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is in promise. This is in fulfillment to the promises that God made in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will pour out my spirit upon you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments. And do them. May the Lord cause us to repent of our grieving of the Holy Spirit by our lack of faith and disobedience. And may the Lord restore his power upon his church. Father, this morning we confess that we have lived like those that Paul warned us about, those who deny the power thereof. Father, we pray that you would help us to truly have faith in you, to believe your word, to believe your promises, and to live in them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.